Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, Internet. We're back, back, back. (laughs) That doesn't match our song, but that means you're here with Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is a podcast where we give our completely unnecessary professional opinions on the lives, minds, and relationships in all of your favorite movies. Hey, J.D., will there be learning? I think so. Will there be science? Today, yes. Will there be delightfully informal conceptualizations about the minds of non-real people from two best friends who would be talking about this anyway? Ugh, if you insist. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, we're We're back. back. We're back. (laughs) How are you? I am good. I I am really productive this week where like all of my I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And so I am uh, firing on all cylinders, which I, I haven't been yet in 2022. So it's nice to kind of get that fire under me. Yeah. How are you? I am opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I came back from Austin and thought I had COVID. So feeling a little down. And uh, But I didn't. I got my COVID test back uh, this morning. All it's right. Negative. I feel all better. Right. Look so, at that. Dodge, look at dodge that. another bullet. And look how balanced and relatable we are as people. <laughs> if they don't, if they don't feel close to me today, they're gonna feel close to you today. <laughs> yeah, we take turns. Exactly. I am very excited to be back at another episode. We have had such amazing listeners that are so cool and dedicated. I can't believe how many people. Are listening to this you know week. the movie that i chose for today was actually a suggestion from one of <gasps> my friends and co-workers and i i was like yes we're doing that so yeah there's a lot of like really invested people who have amazing ideas so i love that i yeah. love that getting great feedback week to week so please keep sending it please keep letting us know one of the the great piece of feedback i got last week was jd the recap really smart idea to do a synopsis <laughs> at the beginning of every single totally. like, pre-talk for the folks that don't have time to watch it. That way you can just kind of go for it, listen to us, and then go back if you feel like it. But we will give you that nice little memory refresh snapshot. Uh, thank you to Dr. Audrey Wittrup. <laughs> uh, yeah. She came up with that plan. Absolutely. So I'm a little nervous because I really, really ran you through it. Uh, this, <laughs> this could definitely be like a revenge pick. <laughs> yeah, it might be. No. I'm if there's one thing you person. are, it's bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I hold grudges like nobody's business. Yeah, vice like. JK. Uh, do you want to get into it? Yeah, let's just get into let's it. You know like, what? They've it. heard us talk enough. I know. We're not that Who cares? Uh, <laughs> so, the movie that I picked for this week is from 1990. So, like, going Whoa. back a little bit, all I've right. been doing, all of my choices so far have been kind of, like, brand new movies. Contempo casual, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm throwing it back a little bit, um, and this is the tagline. His story will touch you, even though he can't. Oh, no. Oh, no. Is this Ghost? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a horrible choice. His story will touch you. Is it Casper? Nope. Okay, You're going I'm with the clearly ghost, in a ghost thing. theme. Yeah. He can't touch you. Is it Bubble Boy? No, that's like from, <laughs> that's later. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, his story will touch you, even though he can't. He can't touch me. MC Hammer. No. You- <laughs> Do you want more taglines? Yeah, I need. I need a little it, more. I mean, this is gonna give it away. I think. His scars run deep. The story of an uncommonly gentle man. Innocence is what he knows. Beauty is what she sees. Oh, the Beauty and the Beast? No. Oh, his scars. The Beast doesn't know innocence. 
Yeah, but he's got emotional scars. Yeah, that's true. He's <laughs> got scars. These are not emotional scars. Read me that second one again. Okay. His scars run deep. The story of an uncommonly gentle man. Innocence is what he knows. Beauty is what she sees. This feels like... Here's the thing. The, the nightmare that I'm experiencing is that I know the audience knows what movie this is. <laughs> You look stupid. I, it's like I'm having flashbacks of who wants to be a millionaire. They all can <laughs> no. Google the answer while I'm just sitting here no. high stakes. I I don't know. Okay, wait. There's but mm. it's uh, like yeah, I'm going to like a like a of mice and men vibe, but it's not that because it's between a man and a woman. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you the director. That should that should give it away. Okay. Tim Burton. Oh, this is such a good choice. Edward Scissorhands. Yes, yes. Ugh. This is my, my coworker, Danielle, who gave me this idea, and she said it, and I was like, yep, that's exactly yep. what we're doing. Yep. It is, yep. Uh, it's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Great. So we can see it, and hopefully our listeners can see it, too. Yeah. But what is your relationship to this movie? I've seen it once, like a couple years ago. Obviously, you know, I've heard about it's like a huge had a huge impact on culture culture and everything but um i just saw it a few years ago for the first time i mean it's a gorgeous movie it's so beautiful and i think too i like this pick because uh you know we were talking about in fast of the furious we were talking about kind of a common theme throughout a lot of the movies that we picked is representation and like being an outsider and not fitting in and conformity and i think uh this is just tackling that head on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like it for that I reason. think it's a great choice. You know, the first time I saw this movie was this weird thing. This is my childhood trauma. Uh, <laughs> my mom, I think, was, like, too worried that I would get in trouble if I wasn't busy all the time. So, like, a few times I went to summer school, not because I failed things, but because my mom was like, just be somewhere. <laughs> not at home watching TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I saw this, and I took a film class at like the community college. How and old this are you? was one of the. I was in. I was sixteen. It oh, was okay. like a summer school class, though. Okay, it was okay. like everybody in it was, I was like a failed you much high school student for some reason. Yeah, no, I was like fifteen, okay. fifteen or sixteen. Everybody in this was like a failing high school student, mm-hmm. except me. Who then? Which like the real nightmare of showing up as like the one kid who's like, I'm just here for fun summer school. <laughs> I thought You're I'd take a film kid. class. Yeah, talk about no one wanting to be friends with the <laughs> overachieving little homosexual. <laughs> and uh, and I watched this film, and I loved it. I was, like, so blown away, and everybody else in the class just kept being like, he seems gay to me. What? And I was like, he does seem gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a good movie. But it's... I meant it as a compliment. Right. Yeah, it's a lovely movie. It's a it's a sweet little it's a sweet little thing, and I think is a ni- nice example of you know a lot of Tim Burton's themes of like what seems dark and scary can actually be quite heartwarming and gentle, right? Yeah, and gentle yeah. and lovely. Yeah, yeah. What a great pick! I know. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. The audience is now just considering whether I'm smart enough to be oh, a podcast no. host after it took me, <laughs> I think, 48 minutes to guess that. 48 minutes. So we've got yeah, about... Yeah, give or take. We edited six, some of it out, but there was yeah, like a 45-minute pause. Yeah. 45-minute pause in there while I just said, shut up, I'll figure it out. <laughs> stupid, stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> well, on that note... the. the you know what? Our takeaway music has already started. They know yep. a break is coming. We're going to go and watch this movie and come back and have some thoughts. Bye. Bye. Girl. <laughs> girl, girl, girl. Ah, this movie was good. This was such a good pick. It it really was. I feel like it brought up so many it brought so many things to mind that may not have like totally mapped onto the movie perfectly, but I just feel like it brought, yeah. it just reminded me of so many things that it, you know, like psycho psychology themes and and different studies and stuff. Yeah. Should we do a quick little Let's do recap? a synopsis. Yes. Synapses. Synapsis. That's what we should call it. That's what we should call it. For those who don't know, a synapsis is the space between two nerves that fire at each other, right? Nerve two, cells? Yeah. 
Yeah, the space between two nerve cells. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so the synapses of this film. uh, Cute little Avon lady, Diane Wiest, is having a heck of a day living in little boxes made of (laughs) ticky-tacky. And she decides to go up to the spooky little creepy little mansion on the hill. To get that sale. To get that (laughs) sale. Multi-level marketing genius. Uh, Peg Boggs, and which also like I do love that this is like secretly just a story about MLM. Like she's a girl boss. (laughs) She's a girl boss. (laughs) LuLaRoe. They should redo Edward Scissorhands just to incorporate LuLaRoe. I love that. That's a remake. Rodan and Fields. Uh, No, so she goes up, she finds Edward who's been like lost and missing. Uh, honestly, I think the synopsis of this film is pretty short in the sense that like she goes up to find him, she brings him down, the whole town is like, peas and carrots, peas and carrots, mm-hmm. who's this person? Mm-hmm. And then they think he's cool. And they're like, he's so cool, look what he can do for us. Look what he can do to us. And he's an incredible, he starts by doing these like topiaries with plants. Right. Then he starts by doing dogs. Grooming, yep. Groomings. And then he starts doing human hair wigs. Exactly. And they think he's so cool. He's on a he talk falls show. In, he's on a talk show. Um, he, oh, by the way, I think we should name. He does have hands made of scissors. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a little, he's a little pale. He's a little pale. He definitely, yeah, he was created... By he was, an inventor who had passed away at some point. Um, yeah. And he was just kind of left to his own devices. Yeah. He's been deprived of any social life for question mark number of years. Because yes. we he is a he synthetic human. Yeah. Well, we don't know if he ages. No, we do. Because at the end, when he's making the snow, he looks the same. Oh, they show him be the same? Yeah, I thought. Maybe it was just behind. Oh, that's cute. I wasn't sure if it was like a flash for back or forward. I mean, he used all those Avon products, so you know he was going to be staying young. <laughs> that didn't make him look any different, by the way. She's like, I'm going to cover up those scars, and they were never... Darn this stuff! <laughs> they were never covered up for one second. She got to call the head of Avon to ask some questions. It was a big day um, for her. It was a big day for her. So he becomes cool. They like him. He's doing all the things for all the people. And then things go south mm-hmm. when he's not exactly what people want him to be. Uh, in the meantime, based on no conversation and blondness, he falls in <laughs> love with Winona Ryder's character, who is the daughter of Peg Boggs, Avon girl boss. Right. Uh, her boyfriend, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, nerd his of 80 movies fame. Um, he then... Uh, Things go wrong. A, a couple people get tiny little cuts that then make him out to be a serial murderer. Right. Peas and carrots, peas and carrots. He goes up to the hill, kills Anthony Michael Hall because he hits. Because yeah. no, Kim, Kim, yeah, Kim. It's it's Kim, Kim, and then he's dead. And then she finds an extra scissor hand, like you do, and is like, "Scissors is dead. Now it's snow." Oh my God, her. Her old lady voice was... Before scissors, it never snowed. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, ASMR folks. Yeah, It sounded like she had a bottle of NyQuil and then tried to talk conversation. Yeah. So that's... And then he makes snow via ice carvings. How he gets the ice up there to make it snow That's what this podcast is going to be about. That's my whole This is the deep dive. This is a... uh, We are now Snopes. (laughs) We're going to Snopes this. See whether it's possible for one man with scissors hands to uh, make enough snow to cover little boxes made of ticky tacky. Right. And also Winona Ryder rudely went off and like had a life of her own. Yeah. He's just there pining for her forever. But she's off like, I don't know. She has grandkids, so she got up to something. (laughs) This is a very long synopsis. Synapsis. Synapse. The action potential of this film, crazy. <laughs> That's a brains joke. Well, just a neuron joke. It's just a I suppose. term. All over your body <laughs> joke. They're everywhere. So, what a cast. Great cast. Wonderful cast. Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin, man. So funny. The kid, the little brother yeah, is, the, is the kid from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. 
Oh, yeah. I get it. French class. <laughs> He's that kid. Amazing. Um, who did nothing after Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. That's his last movie ever. I really got into an IMDb oh, wow. on that one. Um, nothing. He's great. Yeah, he's great. If you're listening, I'm sure he's listening. Well, obviously. I'm sure by now yeah. he's listening to this. Um, I forget your name, but great job. Great job. Yeah, so. So, yeah, what kind of, like, themes came up for you? You know, so I, I saw this and I thought, okay, this is such a, like, hyperbole. This is kind of this, like, fable style, almost like satire. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought about a few things. Um, the thing that I actually thought the most about was, like, this, like, consumptive celebrity culture in which this thing that is different is sort of commodified and then consumed and then ultimately rejected. Yeah. Um, or sort of used up. Uh, and so I thought about just like the way, you know, one of the first things that kind of came to mind were like the ways in which we consume like blackness, right? The ways in which like uh, bodies of color are in and out of style and fashion and the ways in which people are sort of like trying to, you know, drive this and then uh, until it goes away. Totally. Um, and then I also thought even like weirdly, again, I'm going to get to a mental health place eventually. But the other thing that I, it actually reminded me of was like people like Amy Winehouse, where it's like they are something different and special and everybody wants a piece of them. And then when they start to sort of um, erode a little bit beyond this image that everyone has built on them, Mm -hmm. and when that doesn't fit exactly who they are and how they operate, the world kind of turns on them. Yeah. um, In a pretty tragic way, yeah. I was really fascinated. It's related to kind of what I was looking at too, just that switch, right? Or, like, what is the perception of people who are different? I mean, in this case, yeah. I thought about it as a disability, right? Like, he um, mm-hmm. can't. He, he has limited dexterity, right? Because he has scissors for hands. Even though he can do beautiful things with them, mm-hmm. you see in many scenes his struggles to drink uh, anything, to eat anything, um, to, you know, do anything kind of gently or gingerly, like sleep in a waterbed. Like, so mm-hmm. you see these challenges that he has and even when he's on the talk show i was really struck by the comments from the audience members which you know one of them was like you're amazing and another one was like oh have you ever thought about seeing a doctor for like fixing your hands because i know someone and he says you know i would like to talk to that person and another audience member is like well if you do that then you won't be special anymore and then you won't be able to do things like be on talk shows because you won't be special. Like, why mm-hmm. would you do that? And I just, it seems such like a lose-lose situation yeah. of just like you have to be uh, of service to us in some way, whether it be entertainment, whether it be actual, you know, skills, trades, like grooming yeah. or um, giving haircuts or uh, landscaping, you know? like Yeah. That's when he's the most valued he's giving value to the community and once they turn on him i mean it's really like a couple of things i guess like some people got uh like a little cut um this one neighbor lady who threw herself at him and he kind of rejected her um she was kind of did she get a cut no she just was very like mad about being rejected yeah started rejected saying that he like took advantage of her yeah. And then Anthony Michael Hall gets him involved, and Kim. Arrested. Gets him arrested yeah. because he wants to steal stuff from his uh, dad, who's stingy, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, he wants a van so he can have sex with Kim in it. Yeah. I guess. Great plan. But yeah, so, you know, he he just is the victim of a, of a lot of circumstance. And when he's not no longer of value, right, He he can pick locks really well. That's why he was tapped to, like... Right. Be part of this robbery. Um, or, you know, he can cut hair and this woman, I don't know, she seems like she's into everybody. But, you know, like, once he is no longer of value and people right. can't get exactly what they want from him, they turn on him because he's different. Like, at the end of the day, he's he's just different. Um, right. And so I got really, I don't know if we want to, like, jump into sure. research. I got really into uh, the perception of disability. Mm. Um, and I found kind of three definitions of disability. 
there's this really good like psychology today blog post which i know is okay like, you know <laughs> hit i mean listen hit miss, but um, yeah it was great like this this woman um has mobius syndrome which is facial paralysis um and basically it's very hard for her to uh communicate non-verbally right she can't show ex- ex- expressions okay. and things like that mm-hmm. and so it's been a challenge for her um, and actually, the article talks about how COVID was kind of an equalizer because people are wearing masks, which I thought was a whole inter- interesting wow. uh, thing. But mm-hmm. anyway, she was talking about three different models of disability from Olkin and Pledger. Um, so there's a moral model. So uh, disabled people or their families are morally responsible for their disability. Uh, okay. According to this model, disability is a punishment for sins, a representation of internal evils, a curse, mm. result of karma. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, this is something that I think society as a whole is like, no, right. But there's a character in this movie, the very religious fanatic right. woman who's who believes he must be he must of be the evil. devil. And yeah, we see this in Hollywood and, you know, movies and film all the time, like that evil characters have some kind of like physical manifestation or disability right. you know, that that is supposed to be associated with them. Right. Like the Joker. Or Freddy Krueger, or like Scar from The Lion King, like his name right. is his thing that makes him different. Right. Yeah. And so you know, I think even if consciously we're like, you know, most most people are like, that's not right. It's still internalized, I think, um, because yeah. it's depicted that way. Um, and they also do uh, femininity as a big as a big sign of evil too. Yeah. Like queerness. Yes. Totally. Sorry, not to make it about me, <laughs> and not to we call can, queerness a disability. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's uh, we, t- we you and I talk like personally about this all the time. Otherness. Yeah. Um, otherness. Yes. You know, and uh, there's like tw- about twenty five percent of Americans have a disability, making it the wow. largest minority group. Um, wow. Ableism and uh, you know, is often left out of those kind of conversations about minorities um, and disadvantaged uh-huh. groups. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a type of social identity that anyone can join at any time, right? Depending on things that happen to them. Like it's, it's not something that you're necessarily born with. It's something that can happen to any of us at any time. And actually kind of taking a detour, I was reading this other thing about how people feel when they meet someone with a disability, Mm. kind of a stereo, like resulting in kind of these stereotypical responses, Right. So it happens, you know, when someone's confronted with another individual living with a disability, um, the individual mourns what he or she perceives the other person can't do. Right. Considers how he or she may act if faced with the given disability. And so that person, or, you know, developing excessive sympathy because they're pretending, you know, imagining what it's like for them to have this kind of disability um, or right. disproportionate admiration for him or uh, her. Um, the individual tries to make sense of the other person's circumstances in an effort to reduce his or her own psychological tension re- totally. regarding the idea that such a similar fate may occur in his or her own life. And that is taken right. from uh, a book written by Dunn, Social Psychology of Disability. Um, right. I mean, this is a really common thing with what anyone perceives as misfortune. Mm-hmm. They need to label it and make it the other person's fault. Yep. Therefore, they don't worry about it happening to them. It's the it's the what was well, what was she wearing paradox exactly. of like sexual assault. It's that uh, people who are unhoused must be mentally ill. They must be addicts. Right. We need to believe that they that there's something about them that is other from us. Right. So or that the, it won't happen to us. They did something. Wrong. They did something. They deserve it somehow. Oh, they just don't want to work is a great one for unhoused people, right? Like yeah. the only reason they're there is because they're choosing to be poor. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's right. this false meritocracy that we think we live in, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But absolutely. And I, I think uh, disability uh, or ableism is like an interesting one because when you're thinking about race or, you know, uh, gender even in, in some ways like that's something that maybe you don't have tension about your gender identity you, you mm-hmm. know you're not you're not black right there's no way you're going to be black like there's less of that psychological tension and 
potentially less understanding because of it. But right. with disability, it really is that, that tension of like, could this happen to me? And how can I um, process this so that I'm not so afraid that it will totally. happen to me? Um, totally. And so that really maps onto this kind of moral model. Um, there's a medical model. So that's kind of the way most people like in the West kind of think about disability by default. Um, you know, viewing disability as the direct result of pathologies in the body or mind, right. um, which needs to be cured, right? Right. Um, so there's treatments for, you know, uncomfortable and painful symptoms, which can be, you know, functionally very helpful. But um, it still kind of locates the problem within the disabled individual and the responsibility for treating that disability is limited to that person or their caretakers um, right. and some kind of group of healthcare specialists, right? It's a medical condition that needs to be treated. Um, and so, you know, it, it really kind of puts disability in a box kind of as an exception rather than a common human experience. Um, right. And then this part, the social model, which I really liked. And I'd, I'd been thinking about this in general, but uh, she, she kind of explained it in a really good way. Um, basically, society is the primary cause of disability because disability is, is a matter of perception. Right, and exactly. So, you know, the problem lies with how society is labeling what is disability or not um, and choosing to accommodate it or not. Um, and, you know, how societies are construct, constructed um, and a really good example of this is uh, like having poor eyesight and needing glasses. Right. And it's not a thing that's stigmatized, but it is a disability in right. that you, your, part of your body is not functioning how it's supposed to function. And it causes, you know, impairments in people who can't see. I mean, I wear glasses. Like if I take them off, I can't see anything. And that if I didn't have glasses, that would be a very difficult way to live my life. But because it's such a common experience, it's been kind of accepted and like accommodated by everyone kind of wearing glasses. I mean, it's a fashion accessory. Like you wear your glasses. It's kind of a fashion yeah. accessory because they look, I mean, they look cool because society has told us that they look cool, you know? Yeah. But it's the same thing. Also, they cover the bags under your eyes when you're tie-tie. It's true. Do love that. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. like I just, I really thought that was interesting because you see here too that the way that Edward is perceived by the community changes and is a function of what the community decides it is. Yeah. And so it yes. really, uh, I think, supports this model because he's not different. He's not doing anything differently. It's the way no. people are perceiving him that is changing and labeling him from uh, exceptional to uh, you know a, a danger to him, right? Um, or danger to, to other people. Or, yeah, to the community. Yeah, to the community, a threat. Um, and yeah, so I just, I thought that was really interesting, thinking about these three kind of different ways um, that we think about disability that people do. Well, and the answer for him, you know, that, that feels right for him, not saying it's the right answer for everybody, the answer for him is to go off and live in a world that is, entirely inclusive, mm -hmm. right? I mean, unfortunately, it means he's alone. Right. Uh, and so but it's sort of paradoxical that to be in a world that's inclusive is actually to be entirely exclusive of others. Yeah. But it does speak to a lot of the ways in which um, people with, again, perceived disabilities or, you know, as, as broader society would define disabilities, for instance, like the capital D deaf community mm -hmm. uh, have such pride in their deafness. They have such, they, the, and deafness is uh, their culture, right? And um, a sign language is their culture of whatever country in, you know, America, obviously American sign language. And so there is a real, a real movement within like the capital D deaf community to not get hearing aids or cochlear implants and to use entirely, you know, to use the facility you were given. Right. In a way that, that is, entirely fulfilling, entirely enriching, and, and not in any way lacking of the experience of hearing, mm -hmm. right? It's this sort of thing where, you know, like 
it, it, it's the idea that like bats looking at humans and being like, wait, you can't echolocate. Doesn't that just seem so stupid? Right. Like, I mean, again, not to say that deaf people are a different species, but, but to name that the experience that there's naming is like, yeah, you have this other thing that you can do. Also, that thing is not important to me. Right. The world, unfortunately, doesn't work very hard to include me right. in what's going on. Yeah. But the thing that I'm that I am quote lacking is not something that I perceive as a loss. Right. It is something I experience as other, but it is not something I experience as loss. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, interestingly, the deaf community is very similar to the queer community because most deaf people are born to hearing parents, mm -hmm. and so similar to queer people, where most queer people are born to cisgender heterosexual parents. Right. So the, the deaf community also sort of builds itself out of and within other families and uh, just like the queer community. So it's an interesting kind of thing, right? Queerness, some might see it similarly from a lens of, again, not to make everything about queerness, uh, but just like the, this idea, right, of like other as broken or, or damaged when it's like, no, my life is just different. Right. I think that's a really interesting view to take. And I think Edward is such a great example of somebody who has no shame in his ability until he is made to feel absolutely other. And the irony, of course, being that he's so exceptional yeah, in everything else. I mean, other than maybe Peg Boggs is like also a good character without big flaws. I mean, she's lovely. She doesn't, yeah. She's lovely. Yeah. And she seems to really appreciate him for who he is and does not try to, you know, commodify his his scissors. Yeah. In a way. I mean, she's happy to participate when it when it gives him when he feels that it has value, but she's not like cashing in on him proactively. That's true, yeah. Although she still participates in a sense of like the first thing she does is give him clothes that will make him fit in better. Right? Yes. So th there's yeah. still some kind of participation in this society, or, you know, and she's trying to norms. change his face to look less exactly. scarred. She is trying to make him change. Yeah, but she's not. Certainly, trying, a, she's not trying to take advantage of him. I think she has very pure intentions in what she's doing. Right, and she also, when when things do not go well, does not is never reactive. Right to him, actually, the, really, the, uh, Alan Arkin. I, I always, I think, I remembered him being a little worse than he was, but know, he actually was not pretty, not bad at all. He's quite great. I was like waiting for it. For him to kind of blow up or something? No, it didn't. It didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, he seems like pretty supportive. Um, so I'm so glad that you did this sort of work into disabilities because I did something that's kind of additive mm -hmm. and kind of like builds uh, really from exactly where you came from. So what I looked into was something called savant syndrome, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, it, um, historically has been referred to as like an idiot savant. Or um, more recently, the term autistic savant has been used. Mm -hmm. But now they're really, um, the research and the data is really encouraging people to refer to this as something called savant syndrome. So savant syndrome is this extraordinary condition where someone with uh, typically intellectual disabilities or, um, uh, quote, mental disabilities, which again, not a great term just in general, it's ableist language even mm -hmm. in and of itself. But so uh, people who are neurodivergent in different ways, uh, often with something like uh, autism spectrum disorder, mm -hmm. have some sort of genius in some way that is incongruent to the handicap that they are expected to have in, in these other dimensions. Right. And so one of the really interesting things is that when it comes to autism, as many as one in 10 people with autism spectrum disorder may have remarkable abilities in varying degrees, really? which I think is, yeah, wow. in incredibly cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and though, and I also want to name that although savant syndrome occurs uh, more in autism spectrum disorder than any other, uh, it's believed that about 50% of people with uh, savant syndrome uh, are individuals with autism and 50% are individuals with other neurodivergence. Gotcha. Which includes all sorts of things. Uh, and so the the sort of most famous example of the the savant is Rain Man. Mm -hmm. And so the, Rain Man, the movie, is based on a real person um, 
who had memorized over 6,000 books. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of geography, music, literature, history, sports. He memorized facts. He could memorize all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the most famous. They made a big movie Have with Dustin Hoffman. I actually haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it. Maybe we'll yeah. do maybe we'll future do that. Episode. Uh, future episode, uh, Rain Man and Tom Cruise, right? Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman, Tom mm -hmm. Cruise. So interestingly, these kinds of things have been around uh, obviously for a very long time. We are always hear these different stories about people like um was it Mozart who was uh deaf it's and Beethoven. wrote all this music? Beethoven, thank mm -hmm. you. Good news. I'm terrible at history. <laughs> uh Beethoven. Uh, you know, so obviously there's something very likely of, of a savant syndrome in there. Mm -hmm. um, the first account of savant syndrome in a scientific paper was in uh, 1783, oh, wow. which was uh, somebody named Jedediah Bruxton, who was described as a lightning calculator. And so um, and so that was the, the first one. The next time where they really found this this um, complex and like vast uh difference between their abilities in one area and the other was this person named Thomas Fuller, who could, uh, quote, scarcely uh, comprehend anything either theoretical or practical more complex than counting. However, when Fuller was asked how many seconds a man had lived who was 70 years, 17 days, and 12 hours old, he gave the correct answer of 2,210,500,800 in uh, in 90s, even correcting for the 17 leap years included in that lifespan. That's wild. Which is wild. Yeah. Or in 90 seconds. Sorry. I, <laughs> I read this 90s <laughs> in, in the 90s. I was like, no, 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 in 90 seconds. Right. So he was able to calculate how old somebody who was 70 years, 17 days, and 12 hours old in 90 seconds, which included 17 leap years. Mm. Um, so these, so so I saw this as like Edward being like, okay, you are you have been deprived of all things. You have no social skills. There are some that that would argue that Edward meets criteria for autism. Mm. Um, I think it's pretty hard to like name Edward uh, as having any specific like disorder or um, even being on the autism spectrum, given that there's. He's had no opportunity for comparison. We have had no, like, usually things like uh, autism, which is considered a developmental disorder, mm -hmm. we, we have no uh, trajectory or timeline to really compare his development in order to do so. Um, so within these savants, uh, there's, first of all, this paper that I, that I pulled this from is only seven pages long. It's uh, by uh, a scientist named Daryl Treffert, D-A-R-O-L-D, Treffert. Y'all, this paper is super easy to read. And if you are interested in learning about savants, I highly recommend. It is called The Savant Syndrome, An Extraordinary Condition, A Synopsis, Past, Present, Future. And so within, I, I was super excited to learn about all of these things. So uh, the history of the idiot savant was similar to a lot of other ableist language. The term idiot was a medical term oh, that wow. was a classification for people with an IQ below 25. And... So the, and the word savant comes from, uh, derived from the French for knowledgeable person. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, when actually described, most people who meet the criteria for savant um, have an IQ higher than 40. So they're not technically in the historical idiot um, perspective. But also, again, this is ableist language. And the, and the history of words being coined medically and then being taken over into the zeitgeist and used um, broadly in a pejorative sense, is uh, it's long and storied, and it's right? Everything. So, like, before this, it was idiot. Then it became, you know, the R word, mm -hmm. which now we've referred to, instead of mental retardation, we refer to intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. um, but there are lots of words. I mean, even just the word dumb or refers crazy. to somebody who's psychotic, unable to speak. Right? Crazy, psychotic. Oh, psych yeah, we did psychotic recently. Mm -hmm. um, lame, mm -hmm. that's so lame, mm -hmm. right? All of these are ableist language. Mm -hmm. So just being really mindful of how you're thinking. Um, so the, the, the different kinds of quote mental retardation that exist, uh, all sort of show up in different ways in the savant spectrum. And so, um, famously, uh, the, the scientist down of Down's syndrome, as in the person who discovered and sort of did the earliest research, uh, 
referred to something that called developmental retardation and described cases of sort of early onset and late onset autism. So developmental retardation, meaning it has a change in trajectory, right? Rather than um, a lot of people who are having uh, intellectual disability for different reasons that tends to be either due to a specific injury or um, something, a, a congenital right, defect right. at birth, right? So developmental meaning it changes, which for those who know much about autism, autism uh, has can often have what's called like a later onset and it can show up um, a, little, a little later, which is very traumatic and scary for parents. Mm-hmm. But um, anyways, so the term through this research is where the term developmental disorders came to begin with. But in a study that looked at 5,400 children with autism, uh, they found that 531 were, were reported to have uh, some form of savant syndrome. So like 10%? Uh, so 10%. Yeah, wow. 10% were found to have savant syndrome. And so, um, and so basically, it's hard to say the exact figures. Uh, it's a much, much, much smaller. It's about one in 2,000 people of other disabilities. Mm-hmm. But uh, people with autism is such a small number of people with developmental disabilities. So about 50% of people with savant syndrome have autism spectrum disorder, and the other 50% have other forms of uh, developmental disability, mental retardation, or um, uh, like a central nervous system injury, right, disease, right. things like that. Um Males outnumber females in savant syndrome, but also uh, since there's such a tremendous like majority with uh, autism, males also outnumber females with autism six to one. Right. So this this makes sense. Um, It's weirdly a very small range though of abilities that sort of map onto this savant syndrome. So it's usually abilities in music, art, Mm -hmm. calendar calculating mathematics, and then mechanical or spatial skills. Um, There are some other skills that have been found. Mm -hmm. So like uh, prodigious language, um, prodigious language facility, unusual sensory discrimination in smell, touch, or vision, including synesthesia. Okay, I was just going to ask about that because it's super interesting. Yeah. What's synesthesia? Synesthesia is when you have one sense that is kind of overlapped with another sense, right? Like you see... uh, or you smell colors, or like yeah. you see smell. Like it's like yeah, there's some kind of overlap. Yeah, and there are some people who are famous, like Lord, who uh, says she has synesthesia, synesthesia mm-hmm. so she she can um, see colors in her music and things like that. Uh, I I don't live in her brain, so I can't I can't speak to it. But um, yeah, very famously, one of the most famous uh, uh, pieces of literature about savant syndrome is written by. Um, an autistic savant with uh, Asperger's, which is no longer a a thing. So it would be mild autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he wrote his own autobiography called Born on a Blue Day. And he has synesthesia. So when he thinks of different things, he he sees numbers and colors and these different things. And because he was born on a Friday, which is a five, five is blue or something like that. So he was born on a blue day. Um, and he, his sort of biggest, most famous accomplishment is I think he listed all of the digits of pi from memory in, in a, like, it took like 27 hours or something like that. Well, like he can, like, the, he, ever. no, 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 like all the digits of pi up to 27 hours. Oh, like okay, it, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, pi is infinite. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it continues forever. No, no, no he was able to do like up. Yeah, up to some some insane number, and he's also also like only the the ninth highest person. He's like in ninth place for listing digits of pi from that's memory. That's wild. So that's even that's crazier. <laughs> yes, it's really wild. Um, one of my so these other abilities though. One of my favorites is perfect appreciation of passing time without benefit of a clock, <laughs> which is like like you can just tell what, what time it is. Yeah, like you, you know how much time has passed. Some of these? Like, you can just be like, uh, it's been about seven, it's been seven minutes and 46, 47, 48 <laughs> seconds. Like, that is such, like, a strange superpower. There's definitely, uh, yeah, I think things that are more and less, like, useful in everyday life. Right. I mean, but pretty funny. One time, actually, we may cut this out, y'all, but I gotta say, one time at, at church camp, I was in a, it was a music church camp. Maybe this person was a savant. Uh, it was a music church camp, and the band director, we're all sitting there in the band room at Bayshore Christian Camp, and uh, we're sitting in the band room, and the 
musical conductor asked, hey, will somebody let me know when it's 15 minutes to the end of the hour? Because there's a couple things I just want to go over before, you know, at the mm-hmm. end. Whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> this girl, <laughs> I will never forget. This girl raises her hand and goes, I can do it. Um, I'm actually really good with time. I've been around clocks my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember, and then the whole room went on as if that was a totally normal thing to say. Oh, okay, that's a great skill to have. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, weirdly me too. We even have one in the microwave in my house. My father wears one on his wrist. (laughs) Like, what? It was such a weird thing to say. Anyways, maybe she was. Weird flex, but okay, brah. (laughs) Um, anyways, so, uh, and then the last are, uh, knowledge in specific fields like neurophysiology, statistics, or navigation, which honestly, y'all, neurophysiology, when people know just a ton about all of the specific areas and like folds and bumps and ridges of the brain, that to me fe- always feels like a savant because it is, is it, it is one of the most complex, uh, fields to, yeah. to start to even try to build. I mean, I've taken several neuroanatomy classes and- it takes up my entire time. I took a neuroanatomy uh, didactic with a woman named Susan Bookheimer, who is at UCLA, who is one of the most brilliant humans I've ever met. She's a neuropsychologist, and her job is to be the person asking people questions while they have brain surgery in order to tell the surgeon if they've cut too far. Oh, my God. So she knows the brain so well that she can be like, and what was your first grade teacher's name? And you'll be like, Mrs. Dominsky, and you'd be like, okay, and what color was her hair? And you'd be like, it was, uh, uh, and she'd be like, stop, <laughs> like, stop cutting. Like, the, like, spec- like, the ways in which she can ask questions is bonkers. Yeah. It, like, really blows your mind. Because, yeah, she had, she would have great examples of, like, yeah, like, you can show somebody a picture of a flamingo and say, what is this? And they'll be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And you'd be like, okay, name a pink bird for me. And they'd be like, oh, a flamingo. <laughs> like, it, like, the, the yeah. parts of your brain that are doing I mean, those things are not. have you ever seen not... videos of that? Yes, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah, it's like, Y'all, like they'll, deep they'll do something and then all of a sudden they lose their ability to speak or, like, do something. Yes, it's really wild. Grey's Anatomy has had a few episodes where they did <laughs> right, that. Right, that's the same um, thing. So, uh, wrapping this up on savant syndrome. So, one of the most interesting things is these special skills are always, without exception, accompanied by a prodigious memory. So, they have an exceptional memory for something Mm -hmm. in some way. Um, And interestingly, there's some research that says that savant syndrome can be congenital or it can be acquired. Interesting. So there are some uh, recent reports of savant-type abilities emerging in previously healthy elderly people with frontotemporal dementia. So what we're seeing, right, is this we thing of the about 90s. That with the notebook. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So what, we, what we're seeing is the, the way in which the brain works is so deeply complicated. And there are parts that are connected and separate. And so somebody can have tremendous deficits in one area of the brain. And then somehow, I mean somehow it's able to sort of overcompensate in other areas with this like exceptional I mean, thing. That that uh, happens with stroke patients, right? A part yeah. of their brain has died. And there are yes. people who make full recoveries um in terms of, you know, being able to walk and talk and remember things, you know, it it's unbelievable. It's wild. I mean the thing your brain has to essentially learn to do all these things backwards and upside down. Um, it's, it's easier to do when you're young, which is, uh, due to a concept which is called plasticity, Mm -hmm. which is the ability to sort of like shape and change and, and adapt. Um, but, uh, also there was a weird fake fact going around for a long time, at least in, in childhood in the nineties that would say things like you only, the human brain, we only use 10% of our brain. By the way, that's not Not true. true Uh, try losing 90% of your brain and see how that goes for you. <laughs> Actually, try losing 10% of your brain and see how that goes for you. Like, that is not a fact. I think that was referring that- to, though, like, maybe conscious and subconscious things. Like, I think you're only consciously aware of a small percentage of what your brain is doing. Sure. And maybe these different areas of your brain, maybe people only learn 10% of the vocabulary that hypothetically your brain is capable of learning, et cetera. But there's got to be pruning. Like the, your your brain is a really economical organ. Yeah. So when something is not being used, it does what's called, it, 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 you do something called pruning where it essentially like, is like, you know what? We don't need 
resources to that area. And so it kind of like, you know, so things like language acquisition and childhood get a lot of attention and a mm-hmm. lot of neurons firing, boop, bop, beep. And then as you age, it, you've acquired language. So the the need to learn new words and to learn new languages is less important. So your brain sort of prunes that. Right. It's kind of a weird, uh, very st- short sort of oversimplification. But is that about yeah, right, that's Joanna? Good. That's good. Okay, great. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much it for savant syndrome. I just thought it was so interesting to see that Edward is not just, uh, like he is both disabled and exceptional at the yeah. same time and the ways in which that, that, that plays out. Um, really fun paper. I really enjoyed reading about it. I hope y'all enjoyed <laughs> hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> you can link it in the description, right? Oh yeah, I can put the I link. It, it is an NIMH paper, so it's available to anybody. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like, so you were talking about how, you know, we can't formally diagnose um, Edward with, you know, autism, even if he has right. some uh, some characteristics or, or uh, things that might map onto that, because we don't have any idea of, of what his life has been like to date when Peg right. Boggs finds him. Right. I have a really hard time saying peg bogs. <laughs> peg bogs. <laughs> Not easy to say. Say it in like a super Midwestern. Peg bogs. <laughs> peg, 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 peg bogs. Peg bogs. I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyways. Peggy. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think like we all we really know is that he has been alone for some time, right? Right. And that is kind of, I think, the only fact that we know. I was really like how is he eating right it seems like maybe he's gardening and like growing his own food or something i spent like some time thinking about that well there is that machine that makes cookies is there but how does it get the ingredients yeah he started as part of that machine remember yes yeah yeah, yeah. but like it's i don't know ingredients that was such a cool maybe scene it's... by the way this is totally an aside but like the I don't know. It's very steampunk, but like beautiful. Very steampunk. I mean, it's very, you look at it and you're like, dang, this sure does look like a Tim Burton movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the, the dude looks like Jack Skellington. Yeah, the like, totally. the thing I was like, he, listen, but he, was sticks, I, he knows his aesthetic and sticks to it. I sure was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was very cute. It was very cartoon. Yeah. Loved it. Um, so all we, all we really know is that he has been alone for some time, right? Yeah. And so that made me kind of think about social deprivation. Um, yeah. The, the impacts that that has on development. A lot of the, the papers that I was looking at are really about early neglect or early kind of isolation. Right. Um, this does, there is a whole kind of criminal justice aspect of this, though, that it was a whole other conversation of using solitary confinement as a punishment and how detrimental Ooh. that is and unethical. Um, yeah. Well, most of the studies we have on social depriva- deprivation are case studies because there's no ethical way to deprive children of care. I mean, so that brings me to Harlow's Monkeys. You know Harlow's Monkeys? Maybe. Is this Wire Monkey? Yep. Cloth Monkey? Wire mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wire, yeah. Mom. Um, wire Mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this. So... And One of the most famous uh, psychological studies. Absolutely. It's, it's animal psych. It's done on, yeah. And but even One that, of the most and famous. And even that, completely controversial. I mean, even reading this, I literally is going to cry. <laughs> so, so what's yeah, the study? Yeah, okay. What's the, what's um, the. So basically it's rhesus macaques and they mm-hmm. have these little infant rhesus monkeys and. Um, they're the little like pink faced yeah, ones. They're so they're cute. So cute. Yeah. They look like tiny little humans. <sighs> I can't. Uh, he had this study really wanting to understand um, how important maternal care is um, beyond kind of just like a feeding aspect, right? Um, right. And so he developed these surrogate mothers that were made out of wire um, and wood and uh, had them, you know, bond with, with the infant monkeys. And so they had one that was just this wire and wood, and there was another one that had cloth around it and was kind of, you know, warm and cozy. And the monkeys preferred the cloth mother, even yeah. when the wire mother had food and the cloth mother did yeah. not. They added milk, like a milk duct yep. into the, like a bottle. Yep. 
into the wire monkey. Yeah, and it's they still preferred. I mean, like one hundred percent of them still preferred the cloth mother. This like comfort, you know, contact, like how critical it is, and be you know, and that was kind of the point he was trying to make, which was a good point, but it was just such. He, I mean, he had a lot of other studies, like um, just having them raised in isolation, like having infants being raised completely alone from like three to six months, uh, and they were trying right. to do nine months, and they were trying to do twelve months, but the six and nine month monkeys, uh, who so they had been in isolation for the first six or nine months of their life, were so uh, like non-functional. When they were taken yeah. out, I mean, completely like uh, unable to interact with anyone else to take care of right. themselves in, in such distress. Um, yeah, that the three month monkeys, I think, were able to kind of they were still having some deficits socially, but they were able to at least like survive. Um, but there are certain there was like one instance where one of the monkeys who had been deprived for I think six months like stopped eating and couldn't like it the monkey like died five days after it was released from mm. from that isolation because it was in shock like complete yeah. social sensory shock um so obviously those are horrible but um you know these these kinds of studies this was in the 50s too um even in monkeys is just showing us like how critically important it is to connect with other people from birth you know, and and um, the the impact that that can that can have, um, and you know that one study that that was about the the monkey experiencing like high levels of stress, you know, when they were mm-hmm. um, separated or when they were reintegrated. Um, there's a lot of studies in children that are again because of ethical concerns they take it kind of take advantage quote unquote uh, of uh, situations of children in orphanages or in institutions. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot of... The Russian orphanage studies are... Yeah, yeah, Romanian. Um, Devastating. Yeah, completely horrible. But, you know, an opportunity to kind of understand some of that. Um, And so there have been studies looking at immune response and the stress response in children who were raised by biological parents and children who were uh, in orphanages. and they find that sometimes their their basal kind of this is cortisol, right, which is a yeah a hormone stress uh, hormone involved in the stress response. Um, so even just baseline cortisol levels can be higher in children who are you know raised in orphanages, um, and that's kind of a mixed. They sometimes find it, they sometimes don't. But they there was one study um, from people at the University of Wisconsin at Madison who looked at um, having the child interact with their either adoptive parent or their mother um, and then later interacting with the stranger. And they found that um, children who had been in orphanages had higher cortisol activity after interacting with a parent, but not after mm. interacting with the stranger. Right. And that kind of reflects uh, insecure attachment styles. Yeah. Where, you know, essentially children with secure attachment, right, parents are kind of they want to be around their parents, right? In new situations, they their parents kind of can serve as a buffer for them, right? As protective, if right um, if they if they do have secure attachment, and so there wouldn't be any changes in cortisol. Um, but it also could be prenatal factors. It could be kind of these other uh, risk factors that could be causing this. But one of the interpretations is like this insecure attachment to people that are supposed to be yeah. taking care of them. Well, and the just even like the 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 higher stress for an insecurely attached child when you are around a parent or or guardian figure, you know, it speaks to and this is a, a bit of a editorialization, obviously, but it speaks to that this person represents disappointment. This yeah. person represents sh- change. This person represents insecurity and ter- like they, they don't know if this person is coming back therefore them being here even if the child is happy to see the parent there mm-hmm. they are simultaneously scared for when the parent will leave yeah right so that so when a stranger comes it's easier to take that as coming and going so even if a child has love for a parent with an insecure attachment that love comes with a, a price because it is 
the source of so much turmoil for yes, these children. Absolutely. So so the stress may not actually be a fear of things like abuse or a fear right. like the the insecurity of the attachment doesn't mean um that it's like the the insecurity almost stands for like um an instability and an inconsistency yeah. rather than um it seeming just sort of like non-committal, right. which I think sort of sometimes the word like insecure might seem a little bit like mm, totally. I don't really know. It's not even stranger danger with a parent. It's it's this unique form of will you leave me again mm-hmm. danger mm-hmm. that often comes with like very, very high levels of love. Right. And also that love can feel very stressful to hold. Totally. Yeah. Um, and there have been a, kind of a lot of studies looking at this, um, you know, showing that the stress response is different. There's one study that was looking at epigenetic changes. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, found that there were epigenetic changes that impacted their immune system. Yeah, uh, in children who were raised in orphanages versus um, children who were raised by biological parents. Um, so there's genetic changes happening that's impacting. Uh, you know, they have higher like risk for allergies and deficits in their immune system. Um, there are like real kind of neuroendocrine biological consequences yeah i mean the the concept uh of uh, there's a concept called failure to thrive Mm -hmm. which is one of the saddest diagnoses and things that can exist it's essentially um even it's either your body is so injured repeatedly that you're incapable of growing or uh or doing the normal things that you would do developing the way that you Mm -hmm. would or in cases of that with lacking these attachment, they also found in these uh, Romanian orphanages, uh, even without food scarcity, these children are shorter. Yeah. These children are not growing and developing at the rate that they should be based on their age, which is literally like, the, it's so mind boggling the way that connection and attachment and um, attachment. T- attention, right? Like we always are pathologizing people saying, oh, they're looking for attention. Guess what, y'all? It's so crucial for literally your body to function. Yeah. So it's wild. Yeah. It's interesting too, though, because like, you know, I was looking at this, there's obviously a level of social deprivation with Edward in an unspecified kind of time period. But we do see mm-hmm. Vincent Price, like at the beginning, he does seem caring, right? Like he's reading poetry. Yeah, I think they have a yeah. wonderful. Uh, yeah, and I mean, notably, Edward is born adult. Right. <laughs> like he's he's born adult, but yeah, he's. They, I think they have a lovely, caring. Yeah. So I was thinking about that relationship. Too, of like, uh, I think they have a secure attachment. Yeah. He just died. Right. So you know, I was I was thinking about that of like, well, it may not be this early kind of social deprivation or or neglect, sure. but. Um, we don't know. Edward's also not really human. That's another thing. <laughs> There's yeah, no childhood, so, right? There is no childhood. There's no development. Um, He's created fully, like, whole, right? Yeah. Yes. You know, one of the things, this is a bit of a tangent. So should I tange or should we? Go for it. I'm a tange. Uh, and probably one of the last things yeah, we even yeah. say. And I want to note, you know, this is something that has come up in multiple films, particularly when you, when we go back and watch older movies that growing up as a white kid, I didn't notice, there's not a single person of color in this film, I don't think, except the police officer. Right, yep. Who therefore exists sort of outside of the community. And I understand the like dynamic of like the art of like, let me, it's okay to portray this person as other or like whatever. But this also like in the notebook, like just realizing like the only time we see people of color in that are as the help the service position. in the families or in the band yeah. at the thing. And, and like just the ways that like rewatching these movies uh, as a white person at the time went entirely unnoticed for me. Yeah. And in rewatching it now, it's really mind boggling that like, and I think, like, for, like, Tim Burton, I, I would, giving Tim Burton credit, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was saying something like, yes, I'm trying to make, like, a point about this, this you know, community that is entirely sort of homogenous and whitewashed, et cetera. And also, like, you can make that point a lot of ways, right? Yeah, like, you, you also could have, like, like, I think they're, they're like, uh, the notebook is, like, look, we're showing that, like, that is what the black people in the 40s or whatever would have only been working in service positions. Okay, maybe name that. 
right? Like even just naming it, or like, even I, like it, it I mean, is kind of cut to the future, which is supposed to be I don't know current time, and and still, still and in, still the yeah. only yeah the only people of color are in are at least nursing positions. The only physician that we know of is white. is white. Um, also a bad doctor, yes. but anyway, sorry we t- we I are know, now talking about other movies. But I, I, the, like, I did just want to yeah, name like, that like it, it's that is always going to be a theme in everything that we do, unless it's completely current movie, right? There's always going to be yeah. okay. What are the themes? What are the psychological themes of the characters in this movie? And what is the like cultural temperature of uh, yeah. what was the time that this was released in? And where are we now? And how does it feel to watch something? you know, that is uh, reflecting a totally different understanding. Right, right. And this is, a, I mean, this is, I, I think, at least from my sort of view and sociological education, this is a post-Cosby America where we're raising children to believe that racism is done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're, yeah, we're raised, We kids in the 90s were raised to hear that racism was for bad people. I don't see color. And therefore, you don't see color. And if we're not talking about it, then that's progress. Right. And so I, I, you know, I think it is, this is a product of the times. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I do just want to be checking in and noting, like, yeah. dang, like these movies, as we're talking about the psychological impacts, I think we can also talk about, you know, just the impact that this can and would and will have had on the viewer as well Absolutely. of just like, I'm not in this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not in this movie. Well, I'm in this movie. I don't know that you felt like you were I in this movie. I certainly did not, no. Yeah, but, and I did. Well, y- yes and no. But, like, I grew up in a mostly white, small town. Yeah. I'm sure someone in my hometown was named Peg Boggs. Definitely people named Peg. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Wow, no, what a like ride. We, we, went, we went places. And before we did this podcast, it never snowed. <laughs> I'm literally in two feet of snow as we speak in New York, so Edward is close by, I'm sure. I'm sure. He must be just going nuts, <laughs> scissoring up a storm. Well, thank you for listening yeah. to another episode of Real Psych. I have been Dr. J.D. Barton. And I have been Dr. Joanna Whitkin. Follow us on Instagram, like us, subscribe. Leave us a review. (laughs) And tell your friends. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.